Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Storm Cunningham. Thanks, Victor. Glad to be here. Storm, great to have you here. Well, Storm, you have a background in economics, and your main focus is on revitalization and resilience, two topics that are near and dear to my heart. You've lectured all over the world at many different universities on the topic. Maybe give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Well, most people think of me as kind of the urban revitalization guy, but I actually got started in this more on the natural resources side of things. I was on a scuba team in the Green Berets back in the early 70s and stuck with scuba diving after I left the military. And in the late 80s, I noticed that a lot of the places that I enjoyed diving when I returned to them had gone way downhill, were either dead or in really distressed condition. And I got an invitation from a German scientist who was working in Jamaica who invited me to come down and help him install some new coral reef restoration technology he had invented, which to me sounded like fantasy. I mean, how do you restore something that takes thousands of years to aggregate? But sure enough, I spent a week with him installing this stuff on the ocean floor and seeing the places he had already applied technology to. And it was just miraculous how these places had come back to life in a spectacular fashion in just a few months. That was when I kind of woke up to the fact that we don't need to be satisfied with just sustaining. I mean, the world's in really rough shape right now. We don't need to restore this mess. We need to revitalize and regenerate and redevelop it. I love that. If I think back to the 1970s and the 1980s, if you drove down the highway in the summer months, it wouldn't take very long before your windshield was just plastered with insects. Mm Mm-hmm. Today, that doesn't happen as much, and there's a clue in that. There just aren't as many birds and insects around. So it's not just coral reefs. It's happening everywhere. Yeah, when I grew up in New Jersey, we'd walk through urban streams or suburban streams and you know, come away with leeches on our legs, and we'd be seeing newts and salamanders and dragonfly larvae and you know, just crayfish, all kinds of stuff in these creeks. I haven't seen anything like that in several decades now. And the problem is we've got this incremental lowering of standards where the kids who are exploring the streams today think it's perfectly natural to see nothing but a few introduced gambusia fish and pretty much nothing else. That's going to be their standard. 50 years from now, they'll be saying, oh, I remember when there were some little fish in the stream. So the the standards just lower with each generation. Yeah, absolutely. So let's try and make sense about where we are. We've gone through such a massive economic shift over the past year, and that's first and foremost on people's minds. They're wondering about where they're going to make their next paycheck, perhaps, or how they're going to see their way clear to the end of this pandemic. They're not necessarily thinking about some of the things we've just talked about. Where's the opportunity lie for someone, perhaps even a real estate investor, real estate developer in today's environment? Well, the big opportunity on a more of a broad scale canvas is in becoming more expert at the process of revitalizing places. Right now, most communities are stuck in a project by project stop start mode 
very haphazard. So they don't really build up any momentum that inspires confidence in their future. And that's what people need right now in order to invest in a community is confidence that five years, 10 years from now, this community is going to be in better shape than it's in now. Any investor doesn't really care what condition something's in when they buy it. All they care about is, is it going to be more valuable after I buy it than it was when I bought it? So, you know, that's why you see real estate investors buying contaminated properties and ugly derelict buildings and that sort of thing, because they believe that the future of that neighborhood or that city is going to be revitalized and they want to become a part of it. The problem is that most community leaders really don't understand that there is a process to revitalization. You talk to any business leader and they'll tell you that to reliably produce anything, whether it's clothing or peanut butter or cars, you need a process. But you talk to community and regional leaders and they just look at you blankly when you ask them what their process is. It's all just, like I said, stop, start, project by project. And they need help. And the more private real estate redevelopers can become knowledgeable of that project, the more of a central role they can play in the future of that community. I love what you just said about that because it really speaks to a, a way of thinking, a way of being, and a way of looking at communities. I mean, so often communities are just taught to sprawl. There's more acreage out the extremities. And of course, the most efficient thing for a track home builder to do is take down 200 acres and regrade it and start building houses en masse. That's the easiest and most efficient thing to do. It's also the laziest thing to do. Mm-hmm. If we look at repurposing the interior core, because let's face it, every city in America has that band of real estate between the downtown core and the suburbs that's been neglected for 30 years. Yeah, and downtowns, it's something most community leaders have taken for granted. They think they can get away with doing almost anything and the downtown will somehow survive. And now they know that's not the case. And the fact is that a community without a healthy downtown is like a person without a healthy heart. You're not going to get far, no matter what else you do, if your heart's bad. So downtown revitalization has become the primary focus for a lot of this, although there's also been tremendous growth in the redevelopment and revitalization of the inner ring suburbs, you know, older suburbs. The real growth is in the repurposing, the renewing, and the reconnecting of our natural and built and socioeconomic assets. You know, that's the process that I was talking about. In fact, it, it's really boiled down to a, a strategy I refer to as the three re strategy, which is repurpose, renew, reconnect. That's the strategy I've seen that's at the heart, whether people knew it or not, at the most spectacularly successful urban revitalization stories worldwide. And it's a fairly simple sort of thing. And it makes sense that if you look at a derelict property, the first thing you have to do if you're going to renew it is find a viable new purpose for it. it. might be very different from the original purpose. And once you've got that viable new purpose, now you can attract the money you need to renew it. So that's the second step. And the third step that most people forget about is reconnecting. We've fragmented our cities tremendously with badly planned highways, badly planned zoning. We need to recognize that we can often double or triple the value of our urban redevelopment projects simply by better connecting them. I have regular conversations with people both at the policy level in planning and even at the political realm with city councilors. And, and it's not just my city, it's cities all over North America. Some of them get it and a lot of them don't. A 
lot of them say, I don't want the first impression of my town to be townhouses. I want single family homes or whatever it might be. So they impose these zoning restrictions based on some vision they have in their own mind with no concept as to what it takes to really build a community. Yeah. The trouble is they always fall back on the usual suspects, either planning or design. And the fact is, (laughs) uh, in the case of plans, those are usually optional. I've probably heard more success and failure stories of urban revitalization and redevelopment over the last 20 years than anybody else on the planet. Because ever since my books came out, I've basically earned my living doing talks and workshops all over the planet in planning meetings and strategy meetings and summits and conventions, all related to revitalizing places of some kind. And for every talk I give, I usually hear at least a dozen. So I've spent the last 20 years listening to probably thousands of talks that presented some local project, whether it was a failure or a success. And I've been looking for commonalities. One of the interesting things was that plans are occasionally, but not very often involved in the great successes, but they're very often associated with failures. And the other thing is design. People tend to bring the designers in way too early. There are other steps in the process that need to be completed long before you start talking about the design of your project. And when design is done too far in the beginning, when it's done too early, it basically stifles projects. So maybe if you can give an example, because what you just said here are two counterintuitive things that are a little bit intriguing. Plans, (laughs) there's there's a real scam going on here. in the urban planning industry. The fact is, if you talk to people who are actually in the planning industry and put a few beers in them, so they start telling you the way things really are, they'll tell you that most plans are a substitute for action. Elected officials love to buy plans, whether they're done by an outside firm or whether it's done by on staff. It's a plan is something, it's a sure win. You know, it makes them look like they're doing something. So they get up in front of the public and they'll say, we're commissioning a new plan, comprehensive plan or whatever, or revitalization strategic plan. And they've got a feather in their cap as soon as they announce it and absolutely no risk. Then the plan is delivered and they get up in front of the microphones again and they get another feather in their cap for saying, we now have a plan. Still no risk. All they had to do is write a check. Now the risk comes when they try to implement the plan and Elected leaders hate risk. They'll avoid it at any cost. And that's why plans usually just go onto the shelf. And five or 10 years later, another announcement, we're going to update our plan. And this goes on and on and on for decades. And the planners know it, especially the commercial planners, the ones who do this as outside consulting firms. A friend of mine was in a multiple award-winning urban planner And towards the end of his career, he joined the American Planning Association as an executive, and he retired recently. And I won't say his name. I don't want to get him into any trouble. But I talked to him on his last day in the office and asked him what his perception of an urban plan was. And he said, a plan is a list of crap nobody ever pays attention to. Interesting. So my home city is just in the process of launching its new official plan. And it's designed to be a comprehensive rework of the patchwork of different constraints that have been overlaid on various neighborhoods 
to try and create a little bit more harmony. For example, the concept of the 15-minute community, a walkable community, you should be able within your neighborhood to get to certain amenities within a 15-minute walk. Those are interesting concepts. Now the question is, how does that translate into implementation? Because it's very difficult to retrofit that if your city wasn't designed that way. Oh, most plans are actually quite good these days. In the past, almost all major urban problems we have today were professionally planned. Somebody earned a good paycheck doing the damage that we now see to our cities. But the fact is, a lot of the planning that's being done these days is actually very good. The problem usually isn't the plans. The problem is the presence of a plan and the fact that the plan is never implemented. And that gets in the way of actual progress because people are under the illusion that having a plan is actually going to revitalize their city. And since they're not implemented, what it usually does is retard the revitalization of their city. The fact is that the process that I've described and documented in my newest book, Reconomics, that just came out last year, the Reconomics process doesn't even include a plan. You can stick a plan in there if it's legally required. And a lot of cities are legally required to have a comprehensive plan. But if you're not required to have it, your revitalization will take place a lot faster and more efficiently if you just use these six steps of the Reconomics process, which is really just a minimum viable process. You can add to it, but you can't take away because a process with a missing piece is really isn't a process. Is it a failure to understand the obstacles to implementation of the economic plan that's just missing from the plan itself, or is it a failure to understand the process? It's not the plan itself that's the problem in many cases. It's ignorance on the part of local leaders as to the process, which is a strategic process, and the first two elements of it are vision and strategy. Now, everybody talks about vision and strategy. And most people kind of understand what a vision is, although most people would have trouble defining it. My definition is that a vision is a cohesive set of goals. And a lot of communities, probably most communities now, have done visioning sessions. They've got what they call a shared vision for the future of their city, but then they stop there. And a vision by itself goes nowhere, just like a plan by itself goes nowhere. The flip side to a vision is a strategy. How do you actually overcome the primary obstacles to achieving the vision? And very, very few places have a strategy. Very few people even really know what a strategy is. It's a word they use constantly, but 99% of the strategic plans, officially called strategic plans that I've seen, do not have a strategy. Hmm. It's really kind of shocking. I'll, I'll go to, up to public leaders and ask them, so you know, you've been talking about revitalizing your downtown. What's your strategy? And they'll reach up onto the shelf and pull down a 300-page plan and say, here we go. And I say, no, actually, that's a plan. What, what's your strategy? And they'll say, oh, well, our strategy is to improve our quality of life and grow jobs and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I say, no, that's a vision. You know, th that's your, that's your, those are your goals. What's your strategy for achieving the vision? And they'll just usually throw up their hands in frustration and walk away. Fascinating. Well, Storm, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, I'm very interested to get a copy of your book. What's the best way? Well, the new book, Reconomics, uh, which is subtitled The Path to Resilient Prosperity, came out last year. You can get it from Amazon. And in fact, Amazon's actually got a sale on it right now, $5 off. So you can get it for $14.99. If you want to just get an overview of all the things I work on, go to stormcunningham.com. 
And that has links to my books and the Reconomics Institute and the Revitalization Journal, which I edit, which now has over 8,000 articles in it. That should get you started. Fantastic. Well, Storm, this is a fascinating conversation. I'd be very keen to have you back and dig deeper into this on a future episode. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Storm at stormcunningham.com. Get a copy of his latest book, Reconomics, at Amazon. In the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.